Mr. Halpern, thank you so much for joining us. I'm happy to be here. Why don't we start with your background? You know, where did you start off, the arc of your career, and what you're doing now? Sure. Um, so I started working for my local congressman as sort of an intern driver while I was uh, in, in college here in D.C. Uh, in the late 1980s. Um, and uh, moved on from there, started working for the Energy and Commerce Committee, spent, I don't know, about uh, a little less than, than 10 years there. And in the middle, uh, we, we, I, was, I got to experience a, a change that not a lot of folks had experienced before that, which was the shift uh, in majorities in the House of Representatives from uh, Republican to, or from Democratic to uh, Republican for the first time in 40 odd years. And, you know, as, as I shifted into a more of a majority role in, uh, at the Energy and Commerce Committee, I, I sort of developed a, uh, uh, a proficiency and, uh, and interest in the procedural side of things. And that led to me joining the, uh, uh, the new Financial Services Committee in 2000 uh, as their general counsel. Uh, I was working for a guy named Mike Oxley, uh, who passed away a few years ago. But uh, uh, Mike is the, the, the Oxley and Sarbanes-Oxley. Um, and then uh, in 2005, I was uh, recruited by then Chairman David Dreyer to come over and be the uh, the staff director, the chief staff person on the uh, on the House Rules Committee, which is part of leadership and is responsible for running the floor day to day on behalf of the speaker. So spent a little bit more than a decade there uh, before um, being asked by Speaker Ryan uh, to come over to the speaker's office and and uh, run the floor for uh, for him and I. I had had a very close relationship with, uh, you know, the floor directors for both for Speaker Hastert, uh, Speaker Boehner, and uh, and and Speaker Ryan for the first part of his term. Um, so it was kind of a natural fit uh, when when the person who who held that role decided to move on. So. Um, it, it was uh, it was a it was a great run, more than thirty years in the House, um, and I retired uh, when Speaker Ryan retired. I was actually the last uh, Paul Ryan employee to leave the building, um, and then I have what I affectionately refer to as my gap year, where I was trying to figure out what to do next, and was approached uh, by some folks both in the House and the Senate. Uh, and asked to think about taking over uh, as the head of GPL. And um, it, it was interesting because I had been a longtime customer of GPOs, not always a particularly happy customer of GPOs. Um, and uh, uh, it was a really interesting opportunity. So uh, fast forward a little bit and I... Uh, uh, was nominated by President Trump to be the head of GPO uh, in mid-October of 2019, and I was unanimously confirmed by the Senate uh, uh, about 40-odd days later um, in mid-December, 
and uh, took the oath of office a little bit later and um, suddenly found myself running a, uh, uh, a billion dollar government enterprise that uh, had had almost 1600 employees. And shortly after I began, found myself in the middle of COVID, which kind of realigned all of our priorities. I had to had to figure out how to how to keep GPO running during that period. Um, and uh, two years later, we're starting to get back to normal, and uh, we're we're working through our strategic planning for the next five years, and uh, and looking forward to a prosperous future. Fantastic. So it's quite a variety of different positions you've had on the Hill. Can you talk a little bit about you know what what's similar about these positions and what's different? Obviously, your current position is quite different than what you did previously. But I'd be curious to hear on a perspective over such a long period of time and so many different positions. Like, sort of what was the same and what was different among all those? I, I spent a lot of time um, involved in, frankly, very transactional kinds of roles. So. Um, when, uh, when I worked, when I worked in committees, you know, energy and commerce, financial services, when I was doing more issues, um, you tended to take a little bit of a longer view, but really when I was at financial services, I was concerned with what are the milestones we need to hit to move legislation that week and the next week and the week after that, um, what do we need to do to make sure all of our hearings are, are uh, moving forward, um, keeping the, the, just the paper flow of the committee moving. Um, when I was at the Rules Committee, that was highly transactional because you're, you're prepping you know, anywhere between one and three or four bills in any given week. And you're uh, working closely with, with the majority leadership to try and figure out uh, what the uh, uh, what the terms of debate are going to be, how long something's going to get debated, uh, if there are going to be amendments, what amendments, how many, all of those kinds of things. And um, it was very, very rapid fire. And particularly when I was at the Rules Committee and later in the Speaker's office, um, you know, those were, uh, those were very high stress, very long hours. Uh, that you spent, you know, it wasn't, it was probably similar both at the rules committee and in the speaker's office. It was the kind of thing where you would start your day at 8.30 or nine o'clock in the morning. And if you were lucky when the house was in session, you were home by eight or nine o'clock at night. Um, and if you weren't lucky, it was in the wee hours of the, of the next morning. So, um, yeah, you know, the 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 op tempo of those roles uh, was was really at at the high end of the scale. Um, here at GPO, things tend to be a little bit uh, sleepier, for lack of a better better term. Uh, we uh, we are a twenty four seven operation. Um, GPO serves all three branches of government, uh, publishing and and producing uh, information for them. Um, and uh, you know, we uh, um, while while we run twenty four seven, there isn't there aren't the same kinds of imperatives, particularly for somebody at the at the executive level. It's not that same kind of 
up tempo. I mean, you know, we do we do produce basically the equivalent of two big city newspapers a day between the Federal Register and the Congressional Record. Um, but you know, that process has been running pretty much the same for for several decades. And unless something goes wrong, there isn't there isn't a huge change from from day to day on either of those those things. Similarly, we produce the U.S. passport, um, and that 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 process uh, runs pretty well. And those, you know, we we obviously have challenges, particularly with supply chain and labor and things like that. But uh, but that that operation also runs pretty well on its own. And we've got other lines of business as well. Um, but all of that, uh, all of that, you know, sort of comes together. The, the skills that I learned on, on the Hill, both as a manager and understanding what the needs of uh, the members and the staff on on the Hill are those, those have been huge benefits to me here at GPO because it lets us really understand both both our customer and, in fact, you know, I guess the best equivalent is our board of directors. So, Congress has has uh, uh, both roles. So they are they are a large customer of ours, um, but they are also our, our oversight and appropriations entities. So um, given that, uh, they're probably our most important customer. So you know, the, the experience I gained on the Hill really lets me understand what their needs are. And then uh, the, the experience I, ga I gained managing small teams uh, on the Hill uh, serves me well here at, here at GPO as I as I lead our executive team and, and the rest of our 1600 craftspeople and professionals at, at GPO. So before we dive a little bit deeper into the GPO, <clears throat> can you talk about the, the floor director kind of position? That one's a little bit different. You know, we've talked to a couple of parliamentarians here, Tom Wickham and uh, Charles Johnson. What's, what is the role that, what role were you playing there and how did it interact with the parliamentarians? Sure. So, um, so the speaker's floor director is um, is basically the person in the speaker's office who who controls the floor, uh, who is in charge of the floor, and is the speaker's representative um, to make sure that the floor is running smoothly. So it's uh, it's a little bit of a different model in the House than it is in the Senate. In the Senate, the people who perform those functions, both for the majority and minority, are actually officers of the Senate. They're the secretary for the majority and the secretary for the minority. Um, and they sort of have their own offices and, and operations. In the House, the, the speaker's floor team, headed by the floor director, and then usually there are anywhere between two and three floor assistants, um, is actually embedded in with the parliamentarians because the parliamentarians are nonpartisan appointees of the speaker, um, but they often need to consult with with the speaker or somebody who can who can uh, offer advice on behalf of the speaker, um, and that that's the speaker's uh, floor director. So uh, when I uh, 
when I was the floor director, I actually sat um, inside uh, a room called the speakers rooms and it's kind of divided down the middle. And, you know, if you walk in on the right side are the speaker's staff and on the left side are the deputy parliamentarian and the assistant parliamentarians. Um, so we, we really work together closely. Um, the parliamentarians often called on us to, to make decisions several times a day um, for everything from uh, usually bill referrals were being made uh, according to the precedence of the house, but sometimes those were political, politically dicey issues and, and came up to our level, but we usually uh, uh, defer to the parliamentarians and their read on those. Um, uh, things like uh, appointing conferees or how long a committee's additional or joint referral might be or uh, things like that. The other, the other element um, that actually is, is fairly important, and this was usually the, the role of the deputy floor director, was making sure that we had members available to serve as speaker pro tem. So, you know, the speaker's office was really um, uh, key to making sure that we had capable members who could preside over the house um, because the speaker himself spent a lot more time uh, working, uh, working on a whole variety of policy and political issues. Um, my other role was really managing the floor operations of the, uh, of the leadership uh, in its entirety. So, you know, it's working closely with the majority leader as uh, that office schedules the floor, working closely with the WIPS office as they gauge support or opposition for per certain things uh, throughout the uh, Republican conference. Um, and it's working with uh, uh, the Democrats as well to make sure that things operated as smoothly as they could uh, on, on the floor. Um, and it's also coordinating between the Senate and, uh, and the White House on the Speaker and the House's institutional roles. So for instance, um, one of the things that got managed uh, through our office was uh, what we call the enrollment process. So the process by which a bill after it's been passed by the House and Senate is, uh, um, is printed on parchment, the clerk's office handles, handles that, um, but then getting it signed by speaker, the president pro tem of the Senate um, or their designees, and then getting that delivered to, to the White House for, for the president's signature. So, you know, it's a, it's a pretty broad uh, portfolio, um, mostly inwardly focused, but, um, you know, if, if something's coming to the floor, if, if, there's a, if there's a policy or political issue or uh, procedural issue, um, the person who serves as the floor director is really uh, you know, the speaker's eyes, ears, and, and hands in many respects in uh, working through those issues. Must have been, it sounds like a pretty cool position. It, it very much is. The position's been known as a bunch of different things over, over the years, but the floor director role really over the last probably three decades or so has been the, um, uh, 
uh, is sort of at the center of, of a lot of the action that goes on in the, in the house. And I, I may have forgotten to mention it, you know, the, the floor director is really um, the speaker's emissary to the rules committee as well. So whoever the staff director of the rules committee is works very, very closely uh, with the speaker's floor director. Excellent. Well, let's let's move on to the GPO then, um, since that's where you've been spending your last couple of years and it has a very important role uh, in the government. Can you talk a little bit generally about GPO and then let's talk then specifically about what GPO does for Congress? Sure. So in general, GPO is a government enterprise um, that uh, publishes trusted government information uh, for the American people. And what we do is we, we provide services to all three branches of government and we, we run as a business. Um, so appropriations make up only about 12% of our, of our total revenue and budget. Um, and large portions of that appropriated, of those appropriated funds are really um, nothing more than deposit accounts. So for instance, Congress appropriates about $80 million a year for its own printing and publishing needs. And we view that as, as for lack of a better term, a big gift card that we, we can bill against um, for services rendered. So uh, we, we perform services for, for Congress. That's most of what we do in our plant here in, uh, in Washington, DC, uh, behind Union Station. Um, but we also do other services. Our next biggest operation in terms of manufacturing is uh, we manufacture the US passport. So uh, that actually is in the process of a uh, product change. So uh, the the blue passport that uh, the most folks have with the with the chip in it it's been around for about 15 years that that product is end of life and uh, has recently been retired um, and we're now manufacturing for the state department a new product called the next generation passport and the biggest difference that most folks will be able to see um, is the identity page is made of a new material it's a it's a polycarbonate material that we also manufacture um, rather than contracting that out. So that's a that's a, also a pretty large manufacturing operation that we run here in DC and at another facility down in Mississippi as well. Um, we also have a very large print procurement operation. Um, so we do about 300 to 400 million dollars a year in uh, business where for mostly for the executive branch, we procure uh, printed items uh, for the executive branch. So everything from uh, blank treasury checks to IRS forms to the Medicare and U booklet, uh, those are all things that we procure on behalf of the, uh, um, uh, the executive branch using, using uh, contractors in all 50 states um, and some of the territories as well. Um, and then we also run the Federal Depository Library Program. So there are about 1,100 libraries all across the country um, <clears throat> that are depositories for federal information. 
Um, in the past, a lot of that has been what we call tangible uh, products. So products that we actually print here at GPO. So physical copies of the congressional record or the federal register get sent out to these, uh, these libraries and they would, they would hold on to them. Um, in the digital age, we have the, uh, um, the world's only ISO certified trusted digital repository. Um, and that's our site, govinfo.gov. And that's really the repository for the digital forms of information for, uh, uh, for the entire federal government. And you'll find a lot of the information from Congress on there, as well as the court, the US courts. There are all sorts of opinions. Um, not all of the courts in the United States are part of that, but, uh, but many of them. Um, and uh, we actually just passed, I'm trying to think it was uh, a few months ago, we passed our 9 billionth retrieval through GovInfo and its, uh, its predecessor system. Uh, so we're very proud of that. Um, we're very proud of the work, work we do uh, on behalf of all three branches of, of government. Um, you know, in terms of what we do for Congress, uh, we run a, uh, a congressional printing operation, and again, it runs 24 hours a day, probably about between five and six days a week, um, depending on workload. Um, can run seven if we if we have to. So, you know, for instance, um, a good example is a uh, uh, a bill. So, a member introduces a bill the in the house the and i'm a house guy so almost all my references will be to the house um but uh, the clerk does their uh does does her processing on that um putting basically metadata onto that that document and then gpo gets the the physical manuscript of that of that measure so uh when that comes to gpo if it was drafted by the Office of Legislative Counsel, we can usually pull the electronic file. Um, and what we do is we produce another paper copy of the output of that electronic file. And then we have a whole proofreading team whose job it is is to make sure that the manuscript matches the electronic file. Because ultimately, um, uh, the paper document is the document of record. So. Uh, the imperative for us is really making sure that um, that 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 document uh, uh, that that the electronic file really reflects that uh, that paper copy that we got from uh, from the house. And then um, there's a whole process to get this either into our typesetting system or make some make some changes if we've got a good electronic file to work from. Um, and then depending on the size of the document, what will happen is it, uh, uh, there are some automated processes that get that onto GovInfo, onto congress.gov, and sent over to the archives for their, their records keeping purposes. And then if it's smaller than about 200 pages, it'll go to what we call our digital print center, uh, where if you, uh, where it'll be printed on, uh, essentially large office copiers, uh, large office printers. Um, 
if it's more than 200 pages, it'll require more specialized binding. So we now print those bills on our digital inkjet presses. Um, and then it goes through the, the bindery here at GPO to, to put that document together and, uh, and then send that to the Hill. We're doing fewer and fewer, um, we're doing fewer and fewer printed copies, but the process to get the printed copy and the process to get the digital copy are really very similar. So, um, you know, the printed copy is just an extra handful of steps. Uh, and, you know, once we get that digital copy, then everything's, everything's going pretty well. But we do that, we do follow a very similar process for uh, the congressional record. Um, and then when Congress has more specialized projects, uh, you know, if they want to publish a historical book, for instance, or um, every two years they uh, they publish the House Rules and Manual, and this document is uh, uh, printed here at GPO, and then uh, you'll notice that there's uh, there's marbling and tabs and a nice leather binding. And we do all of that here at GPO as well. So I like to talk about the people here at GPO. We've got everybody from uh, artisanal bookbinders who are trained in these marbling techniques that are thousands of years old, all the way up to cutting edge software developers uh, on sort of the other end. And we've got everybody in between. So in terms of the, the, the products that you're producing or the, I guess the deliverables you're creating for Congress itself, can you go through, you, you mentioned the federal register, you mentioned, or sorry, you mentioned the, um, uh, the congressional record, you mentioned uh, bills. What's the range of other things they have you basically published for them? Sure. So um, we print uh, uh, the congressional record is 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 a big one, um, but we will print bills, resolutions, and that kind of thing. Um, we also do committee hearings. So if a committee wants to have a printed hearing record, um, we will. Uh, uh, produce that for them. And in fact, we have a lot of uh, uh, GPO personnel detailed to congressional committees to help them put together those hearing records and prepare them to, to be typeset and uh, uh, printed by GPO. We also do committee reports. Uh, so depending on the length and volume of, of, of those, they can, they can be of various levels of complexity. Um, and, uh, um, you know, like I said, we'll also do, uh, a whole host of, uh, uh more one-off kinds of things, um, special books. Um, if there are ceremonies, like for instance, when somebody, uh, lays in state or is otherwise, uh, or receives the congressional gold medal, we'll produce those, uh, programs for, uh, for, for Congress. Um, and we also do uh, more secure documents. So we will produce tickets for things like the, uh, the State of the Union uh, and those, or the inauguration. And those have a lot of security features to prevent counterfeiting as well. Um, so, you know, it, like I said, it's a whole range of products. The day-to-day -day legislative stuff are really um, bills, um, uh, you know, bills, reports, hearings, and the congressional record. 
Um, but the other thing to keep in mind is GPO also produces all the tools that Congress uses to produce these documents. So um, I, I was talking with a group a few weeks ago and I, I really described it as GPO owns the process when Congress hits control P. When they, when they say print, it's our software that takes over um, and, uh, and produces the, that typeset copy. And, and frankly, we're, we're in the process of changing that software. Um, we're building a new system. Uh, the, the software that we've been using to date is a system called Microcomp, which was originally developed by GPO in the early 1980s. Um, it's still operating today, although it's really kind of held together with uh, band-aids and bailing wire. Um, so, and it's been way past its end of life for, for years now. Um, we're replacing that with a new system called XPUB, which is based on uh, uh, XML formatted structured data. Um, that's the format that the Congress has been using to draft legislation for probably about 15, 15 years or so at this point, maybe, maybe a little longer. Um, but in the past, what we've had to do is sort of convert that XML into uh, other formats, including GPO's own proprietary formats to get that, that output. And there are all sorts of hiccups that that process can create. When XPUB comes online, hopefully in the next year to 18 months, um, we'll have a, uh, a process that'll sort of go and have a lot fewer steps. So you'll be able to print from an XML document and get good typeset copy and uh, good, good copy that'll look good on, on the web in a, in a responsive format that's easy to use in a, in a browser or on a tablet or on a phone. So Congress is creating all kinds of information every day, right? It's creating everything from official things like bills uh, to, I guess, what could be considered a semi-official things like hearings, transcripts, to highly informal information, just conversations between members, you know? So there's all this information being generated. How do they decide what goes through GPO and what doesn't? Is it just ad hoc uh, or is no, there it, it, some structure to it? So there, the official documents, um, so GPO is governed by Title 44 of the United States Code. Um, and Title 44 specifies uh, that congressional printing needs to go through GPO. And so documents that could sort of conceivably be in that printed format at the end of the day have to go through GPO. So all of the real official stuff, so things like the congressional record and bills and, and hearings, hearings are, are, are official as well, um, committee reports, all of those kinds of things um, come through GPO. In fact, can't speak really for the Senate, but in the House, um, certain, certain um, there would be certain procedural touch points that would kick off a new print of a bill. So for instance, when a committee reports uh, a measure to, uh, to the House, they, they've got a printed report that goes along with that, but there's also a new print of that bill that kicks off at the same time. Um, 
So, so there's, there's all of that. Uh, some of the stuff that we aren't necessarily responsible for producing, but work very closely with our other legislative branch partners on is, is sort of the metadata. So what is the status information of a particular piece of legislation? Um, how do we make that, that data available to folks? And in the House, there's, a, there's something called the Bulk Data Task Force. And that, that task force uh, has representatives from uh, uh, the clerk, uh, legislative council, GPO, um, and lots of other, other legislative branch customers. And, you know, it, it works to make, make that data available and works on data standards uh, among all of the, the players there uh, to make that more accessible for, for folks in the, in the public. And, and so, for instance, G, one of GPO's roles is we maintain the GitHub or the Git library for, for all of that stuff, the Git repository. Um, uh, it's our GitHub site that, that all of that stuff gets posted to. So whether it's sort of the bulk um, uh, legislative status information uh, that we make available to, to folks, um, whether it's that, whether it's getting uh, text of legislation through our GovInfo API, or any of those kinds of things, we're we're pretty intimately involved with making that stuff available. And are are there different types of information in Congress today that you feel like should go through the w, uh, through the GPO that 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 don't yet and and are sort of low hanging fruit to expand or or do you feel like you know you've got all the official records that are required by the by the title? Well, so I I think. I think we get all of the stuff we're required to get by, by Title 44. Um, but I think one of the things that we need to work on with our partners is making it easier for, frankly, our customers to provide us with that data as data. So here is just one good example. Um, and there are a lot of smart people who are working on this and my my guess is this problem is going to be solved sooner rather than later. Um, but uh, you now, for instance, um, there's a requirement in the House that that you list all of the all of the uh, votes taken in committee, um, and you show who voted which way. Well, so often uh, that information is really just shown as um, uh, scans of the committee tally sheets. And you know, what that does is that provides a high degree of, of accuracy, um, but it really makes it hard to use that information as data. Um, and what I'd like to see, and, and hopefully we can, we can be helpful in doing this, is um, helping, helping our customers have an easy way to structure that data so that as they put that into their committee report, um, either somebody in the house or somebody on the outside can take that data and they can, they can come up with new applications for that. They can create a gigantic vote database. Um, they could apply some AI against that and you could probably see trends that you wouldn't be able to see other, other ways. 
Um, you know, the House has done, uh, and the House and the Senate have done a lot of the preparatory work, um, the foundational work. So, for instance, every member has a, a unique identifier through the uh, the biographical guide. So, when a new member gets elected, they get assigned a new ID. And if you're including that data um, with say vote data, you can track how that member votes across committees um, throughout their entire career and all of those kinds of things. And like I said, I, I, I do view that as kind of low hanging fruit. And I know there are a lot of smart people who are working on that particular problem. I know that's something that the House Modernization Committee has identified as a, as a need. So um, my guess is we're, we'll have an answer to that problem pretty, pretty shortly, but it's a good example of some of the kinds of things that you can do when you start looking at this information as data rather than just sort of static um, information on a page. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, the, the standards question or those identifiers is such an important thing and Congress is such a complex place, like even the metadata around bills in the actions that can be taken related to a bill and or parliamentary procedures, you know, how do you give each potential procedure an ID that can then be uh, standardized? So does GPO play a role in that kind of standardization or creating those ontologies we, or is that something? We that do. Um, so for some of the metadata that's handled by say our partners over at, at the Library of Congress because they run congress.gov. Um, but the, um, the base, XML data standard that is used by both the House and the Senate. Uh, GPO has been instrumental in developing that over the last 20 years or so. And that standard is, is evolving into something we call uh, USLM, so United States Legislative Markup. Um, it's a newer standard. We've worked with uh, other partners um, over at the Office of Law Revision Council um, and as a legislative branch, we are we are trying to uh, um, center on that particular data standard, and it's it's easily compatible with similar international standards. Um, so we're we haven't quite gotten to the point where we've evolved everything to USLM, uh, but the. Uh, uh, the Office of Law Revision Council, new, new uh, revisions of the, of the U.S. code are fully in USLM um, and produced using XPUB, the system I was talking about earlier, uh, which has been a huge time savings for them. I think as you see uh, the House and Senate move to XPUB as part of their, their printing process, you're also going to see... Um, uh, it'll be easier for us to trans to move to a full USLM based based system. So that's still a few years down the road, uh, but uh, but we work very very closely with our House and Senate partners and our other ledge branch partners. Interesting, and so that that comes that you know that's part of your ingestion of data, right? Uh, and trying to structure that so that you can then have. I guess a more diverse and easier set of outputs, right? From if it's standard on the on the way in, it's easier to standardize it and, and make different things of it on the way out. Um, so I'm curious about the way you perceive, you know, the the audiences for this information that you're you're printing. You know, is it is it your average citizen? Is it 
you know, Congress itself? Is it everybody? And, you know, when you think about those audiences, uh, how do you also think about the forms, the way to deliver that information to those audiences? So this is one of the, the things that uh, I personally have been very, very excited about. And one of the things that attracted me to this role. When we were a very young country and we were uh, deciding sort of the methodology for how we were going to write laws, um, we made a couple of really bad decisions. So one of those decisions was that anytime we were going to amend a law, it was going to be a series of instructions to an unseen clerk. Now, when you're sitting there and, and bills are literally handwritten, um, then, then that metaphor makes sense. But the problem is, is that that doesn't scale very well. So what happened was as, um, as we grew as a nation, as our system of laws became more complex, as you develop multiple codes, so we've got the US code, that's the big one that everybody thinks about, but folks forget that, say, the tax law, the Internal Revenue Code, that is its own body of law. It is its own code. Um, and, you know, we, we don't have sort of that unified system of laws that a lot of other countries have, or frankly, a lot of states have. And that has resulted in a whole wide variety of different drafting styles, different typographic styles. Um, and over the years, we have had to build systems to account for all of those things. So now we find ourselves in 2021. And if you want to make a change, that creates all sorts of ripples through all of those systems. And it, it then becomes really, really difficult. Um, one of the features of the way that we draft laws is we are tied to the typographic instruction. So if you're going back and making an amendment, um, unless you specify that a, that a heading is, is bold-faced, uh, small cap, um, unless, unless you're accurately representing that, it's going to go into the U.S. code in, in a different way. And that can cause all sorts of problems. It, it screws up the cues for, for readers and that kind of thing. So because our system is tied to the visual typographic layout. Um, we've, we've run into to problems as, as we try to modernize because the primary thing that we're delivering is that PDF that accurately represents the paper output. Um, but the problem is other formats don't translate quite as well. So, for instance, if you've ever tried to pull up the text display of, um, of a bill, you just pick almost anyone. Um, it's terrible. It is awful. And, you know, on behalf of GPO, on behalf of my former bosses at Congress, like I, I feel the need to apologize to people. That we actually put something this bad out into the world because there are hard returns at the ends of lines. If, if you're copying and pasting and trying to reuse that information, um, you have to do a lot of work to get that into a usable format. So one of the things that when we shift over to XPUB, we're going to be able to do 
is we're going to be able to provide a real responsive text display um, like you'd find on any website where if you're just copying and pasting, it's just a paragraph of text. And it, you know, whether you're pasting that into Word or Google Docs or wherever, like systems know how to handle that stuff. Um, you know, so that's just, that's sort of the medium term. It's, it's trying to provide all of these documents in more usable formats. So in formats that can be reused um, and easily accessed, whether you're um, at a public library someplace on a public terminal, or you're looking at it on paper, or you're looking at it on your phone or, uh, or a tablet. Um, now, one of the things that XPUB is going to enable us to do is sort of break out of this system where we are tied to these very traditional typeset formats. So the example I've used in, in prior testimony before Congress is the design of a committee report has basically been exactly the same um, since GPO was created at the beginning of the Civil War. So if you look at a document from the 1860s, um, the general format looks the same as it did in the 1940s and 50s when we were using uh, hot lead type. Um, in the 1860s, we were using handset type. Um, to the 1990s, early 2000s today, um, when we're using digital type. Um, that format has always been largely the same. In fact, it was a requirement. But in the intervening couple of hundred years, uh, what people are asking for from their documents has, has changed a lot. And our old systems really couldn't deliver that. So things that are really, really easy to do in say Microsoft Word or Google Doc or, or any other uh, commercially available system. You know, you want to insert a, an image or a table or uh, a chart or a graph. Those are all really easy to, things to do with modern systems. They are really complex and hard to do with our existing typesetting systems. XPUB will change that. So it'll give us a lot more flexibility in terms of uh, being able to create uh, even like word templates for our customers so that they can, they can author content that way in systems they're very familiar with and we can ingest that and, and process it. Um, and then you sort of combine XPUB with some changes in manufacturing equipment that we've made. So we've shifted from those big um, offset presses to more modern digital inkjet presses. And the big difference is in, in an offset world, there's a lot of pre-press work you have to do. So you have to, you have to create a metal plate with the images of, of the pages you're printing on. And there's a, because that process is so expensive, uh, both in terms of labor and raw materials, there is a, there is a strong incentive to uh, keep that process as economical as you can. Um, it makes color uh, really, really expensive because for every page with color on it, you need multiple 
uh, you need those multiple plates to, to produce those. On digital inkjet uh, press, it functions like a large office copier or like, a, like your home inkjet, except it's the size of your, your SUV or, or a tractor trailer. Um, but you sort of combine where we're going with software, where we're going with, with our press hardware, um, that gives us an opportunity to take another look at what our congressional documents look like. So no longer are we constrained to sort of weird page sizes because we can fit a whole lot more pages on a plate uh, that way than we, than we could with eight and a half by 11 or, or letter half or something like that. Um, no longer is color really prohibitive. Um, and you know, graphics and other things are, are pretty easy for us to do. So you combine all of those things and it's really an opportunity for Congress to take a look at its own documents and try and, try and modernize that process and try and modernize the design so you're conveying more information. I mean, you know, I, I sort of got this inspiration from a trip I took uh, at this point, 15, 20 years ago uh, to the UK. And I was talking with one of their, their clerks for the House of Commons. And I said, you know, your documents actually look pretty, pretty modern. They use regular size paper and they, they use uh, commercially available typefaces and, and even color, like everything in the, in the British Parliament is color coded. It's, it's red for the House of Lords, it's green for the House of Commons. And you know the clerk over there just said, "Oh yeah, no, we just a few years before we just decided everything looked too Victorian, so we just changed it." And you know when I came back and tried to talk to GPO about making those changes, it you would have thought I had asked everybody to give up their firstborn child. Like it was very very hard. Um, but I think now we are at that inflection point where all of these things are coming together and. Uh, um, it's an opportunity for Congress to really take a good hard look at its own documents and figure out what uh, uh, if there's a better way to design those documents. Well, it's interesting. What do you, in your mind, for the GPO, what's its role when it comes to the different audiences? Like, you know, you could you know print everything just like you did it you know a hundred years ago, uh, or you could print nothing and just print. You could just have an API, right? Where any third party could just grab the API and print out any way they want, put on a website they want. And GPO basically doesn't have to do any of the, um, I would say, rendering of that, that data into a physical or digital form for a consumer. You know, what, is there a philosophy behind that? Do you have like a mandate? You know, it has to be re readable by your average citizen. You know, what kind of drives what decisions you make in terms of the the way you present the data or the content. So, so it depends on what data we're looking at. So for instance, a congressional record or a committee report or a hearing, those are all fairly flexible formats. Like the what you're um, what you're presenting is something that uh, um, could easily be reformatted in a bunch of different ways. Um, when you get to actual legislation, that's where we're really hemmed in by the system we use. So 
Um, again, because we made the decision long ago that um, changes were to be expressed as instructions to an unseen clerk, uh, legislation, uh, amendments to legislation, whether it's um, uh, as it's working its way through the process, is expressed in terms of page and line numbers. So you need that static display um, that shows you what page it's on and what line number that change is on to, to give that amendatory instruction. Um, I think both we recognize that that's difficult for our, for our users and for, for our end users, um, as do a lot of other folks involved with this process. I don't think any of us have really good answers as to how you uh, address that going forward. And this is one of those cases where change is really hard, um, but it's, it's, it's a question we're, we're actively thinking about. Um, you know, right now, Title 44 is kind of tied to print output. Um, I don't think it's going to stay that way forever. And our own, uh, our, our own um, uh, package of uh, suggested legislative changes for Congress really move us from that print metaphor to that published metaphor. Um, but at, at some level, you need a common language for what all this stuff looks like. And, you know, authors, authors of documents, authors of information often do want their information presented in a particular way. That doesn't mean it can't be reused and repurposed by folks in, in using different metaphors. Um, but uh, it, it's one of the things that uh, um, we're... Uh, it, it's one of those things that I'm very, very interested in. And, you know, good vendors help their customers sometimes see past, uh, uh, see past some of their own uh, um, inertia. And we're trying to do that with, with Congress. Yeah, I would think that's, that's got to be a big challenge, um, you know, because, and plus your customers changing. You know, every couple that's, of years, that's true. They may have different Although reasons. I've I've got to say, there's been a lot of bipartisan agreement um, on the uh, the need to continue modernizing the system and and building the infrastructure. And I really think that, given the chance, either whoever whoever our customer is, whether it's you know a Democratic majority or a Republican majority or something in between. Um, they're going to see the value of of looking at these things differently, and um, I'm I'm very hopeful in that respect. So it's been a couple of years in the role. So how how has it been in in running? And obviously, it's been a very difficult time because of the pandemic. But in terms of your ambition for changing the GPO versus where you are now, has it been easier? Has it been harder? Is it the challenge more on the customer or the management? So the uh, the pandemic really sort of threw a wrench into into things. You know, just by just by way of example, um, you know, GPO was never really designed to work in a in in a COVID environment. Um, one example is our our passport production line. Um, people are like literally on top of each other. And so it took us several months to figure out how to operate that line um, in a way that was safe for, for our teammates, 
um, and could still maintain something near the the production volumes uh, that we we had to for our for our customer. Similarly, um, you know, we we had to uh, alter a lot of our processes, like even in the proof room, again, because particularly for second and third shift, you know, the afternoon and overnight shifts, um, uh, people were just on top of each other. And so we had to cut, uh, cut our personnel in half. So what we did was we basically paid half of our team to stay at home for a particular week so that, uh, one, you could have a little bit more social distancing. And two, if you did have an outbreak uh, that was going to sideline uh, a large portion of our team, um, our work didn't stop. We could still do the congressional record every single day as we were required to by, by Congress. Um, but, you know, it, it was a very, very difficult period. In fact, we... Uh, uh, we missed publication on uh, the Federal Register one day. Um, and it was one of those perfect storm kind of situations. It was We were operating with uh, half the staff we normally do. Um, we had a particularly long edition of the Federal Register uh, that was very, very complicated from a type setting standpoint. And we had a water main break or a, a sprinkler head break uh, that, that doused one of our offices and, and required us to relocate from there. Um, but, and that was the first miss I want to say since the 1940s. And it, it was an important lesson for us. Um, but I, I spent a lot of time just trying to figure out that, how we managed through, uh, through that. We, what I didn't get a chance to do and what we've started doing over probably the last uh, eight, nine months or so is really getting back to that long-term vision for, for GPO. Um, our, uh, our new draft five-year strategic plan is out for public comment on our website. Um, and we'd encourage anybody to take a look at that. Um, you know, we've, we've got some real challenges coming up uh, over the next uh, several years. Um, the average age of the, the folks who work at GPO is higher than the average for federal employees. Over half of my workforce is going to be eligible to retire in the next five years. Doesn't mean they are all going to retire, but uh, that's something we've got to factor in. Um, you know, it is in today's labor environment, it is hard to find uh, find people in general and particularly the kinds of skilled uh, craftspeople that we're looking for, whether they're typesetters or bookbinders or press operators, you know, all of those kinds of things are in very, very short supply. So we're trying to restart our, our apprenticeship programs to try and create uh, create some of those folks uh, and get them into the pipeline. Um, but all that stuff takes time. And it's a little bit like uh, like trying to trying to, uh, you know, uh, I uh, it's not rearranging deck chairs on the on the Titanic. That's the wrong metaphor. But it's trying to trying to rearrange, you know, how everybody's sitting in a car while the car is moving, because you still have to uh, you still have to produce product. You still have to 
collect from your your customers so that so that you can pay people at the end of every two weeks. Excellent. Well, I think at this point we need to move on to the uh, the phase of the program where I ask you questions uh, that I've asked everybody, and so that someday we can compare the answers. So you're ready to move on to the next phase. Sounds great. All right. Well, the first question here is, uh, what do you think congressional representation should mean? And, you know, are you uh, where do you come down in in terms of your philosophy about judgments that, you know, members should make and uh, and who they're making them for? So uh, my old boss at the at the uh, um, at the House Rules Committee, uh, David Dreyer, who at the time was the only L.A. Republic, L.A. area Republican, um, you know, he would always remind me that we are, we are a uh, representative democracy. We are a representative republic. And, uh, and key in that was, was that notion of representation. That meant that we needed to, that he needed to talk to his constituents frequently, but at some point he needed to exercise his own judgment. And uh, as he always said, um, you know, uh, people don't necessarily elect me on what I will do. It, they'll look at what I've done and decide that they want more of that. Um, and he, you know, there were there were a lot of times where um, uh, he had some he had some difficult things that he had to consider, you know, I think his position on immigration was very different than, uh, than some of his constituents, but he very firmly believed that uh, having a situation where um, goods and people could move freely across borders with appropriate regulation uh, were really important. Um, and it was really important to the health of the economy. Not all of his constituents agreed with that, but he thought it was the right thing to do. Um, and ultimately, he was able to convince enough of them uh, until he was ready to retire. So, so individual judgments in your mind are absolutely by representatives. And in terms of who they represent, is it primary voters? Is it the majority? Is it the whole, uh, uh, I, whole I, district, I, or is it the future generations? You know, who are they representing? I think the easiest answer is when when you're elected to represent district, you represent everybody in that district. Um, and I realize in our polarized environment, it's a little bit hard sometimes to, um, uh, you know, to, to work through those issues. But, uh, you know, once you're, once you're elected, you are constitutionally the representative for that, that political subdivision. And um, if folks thought about it a little bit more that way, we might be in a slightly different position than we are. Um, that said, unless you win a primary, you can't get elected either. So that um, That's the that team. creates some competing uh, uh, competing needs, I guess, is is one way to put that. Great. Next question is: How would your ideal Congress allocate its time? And by that, I mean should they be working? 24 hours a day in DC in committee? Should they be back in their districts 99% of the year? Where do you come down on that? So um, I actually, uh, you, you spoke with uh, my, my good friend, Kyle Nevins in an earlier one of these series. And uh, uh, I remember in, uh, in uh, 2010, 
uh, when when we were talking, Kyle worked for Eric Cantor, who was uh, uh, the incoming uh, majority leader. Um, and we designed actually a fairly decent um, uh, schedule, one that I, I really liked, um, some elements of which uh, the current majority has, has maintained. Um, the idea of where you reserve time in the mornings for committees, uh, for committees to do their work, I think that's really important. And that's not something that, that we had in the early years when I was sort of coming up either through committees or, or on the House floor. Um, and similarly, the idea of two four-day weeks interrupted only by a two-day weekend, um, followed by um, you know, a, a longer uh, four-day weekend and then another four-day work week. So that three-week cycle um, where you, know, you had a longer weekend that made it easier for West Coast members to go home um, uh, over that time. Um, I thought that that was a really, really good schedule. Um, and I thought it made a lot of sense. Um, and keep in mind that committee activities can go on in the afternoon. You just, you're, you're just not guaranteed not to be interrupted by floor votes then. Um, now the problem is that members are human beings. And uh, um, I think there were a whole series of incentives where members, particularly Republican members, really felt that they wanted to be back in their districts on any weekend. So while that was really easy to execute if you were basically east of the Mississippi, when, uh, when you're talking about Western members, um, that was harder to execute, say, on a two-day weekend. And what would end up happening is uh, uh, they would start putting pressure on the leadership to let them go earlier and earlier in the day on a, on a Friday and pushing them to let them come back later on Mondays. Um, and, uh, so that was sort of the one flaw in the system, but I, overall as a concept, um, I thought it worked pretty well. Um, you know, I know not everybody else did, but, uh, I, I think, uh, certainly in the abstract and, and frankly, in the practical as well, I, I think it was far better than what we had previously. Great. Well, next question is, how should debate, deliberation, or dialogue occur or be structured in Congress? And since you spent time on the floor and in, in committee, you know, where, where should this discussion happen? Everywhere? Uh, or should be focused in one particular area? And should the cameras be on? Or should there be some privacy to it? Now, I think one of the, one of the issues that um, the Congress is going to have to grapple with is the uh, sort of the the push and pull uh, about, about cameras. And I'm a big believer that members need private time, um, that they need the opportunity and the ability to talk to one another. And the more barriers we put in the way of that, uh, the worse off it is for the institution. Um, so, uh, yeah, my, my particular view is you know, the, the, there, there needs to be a balance. And uh, I think members do pretty well in, in committees. But I, I can tell you, you know, we, we 
put cameras in the rules committee um, in uh, 2011 when we became the, the majority there. Um, and uh, in 20, yeah, 2011, 2012, um, years run together. Um, but we put cameras in there. And what happened was our meetings got a lot longer. Um, and it wasn't because the members were talking to themselves, they were talking to the cameras. Um, so, you know, on the one hand, it was good to allow people to sort of see how that process worked. Um, on the other hand, you know, you, you run the risk that, that people are, are talking to the, uh, the audience beyond the, the buildings. And that, frankly, was something that the founders were actually very, very concerned about. And while, while I think they believed in some level of transparency, um, there's, they recognize that the members are, are people and, um, they, they need the time to have conversations amongst themselves. So, um, you know, I, I think there needs to be a balance and I think, frankly, uh, the members need to put a little bit more emphasis on having time to talk to one another, having private conversations. Um, and I know I've got good friends in the in the sort of transparency and good government world, and I'm sure they would push back on that a lot. But uh, I think I think there's uh, a far greater need for some of that uh, than than what we've seen so far. Our next question is: What fundamental institutional improvement should Congress make within 50 years? Well, I talked about one of them, and I would love to see Congress change its documents because I think if we change the documents um, and we change the way the Congress sort of officially transmits information, it's gonna have two effects. One, um, it's gonna make that information more available. And my personal belief is that, uh, that somebody who is better informed uh, can make better decisions about what their government uh, ultimately looks like and the policies that government undertakes. Um, but the, the second thing is, is if we can change those documents, we can make them more flexible and, um, improve the kinds of information we can put inside those documents, then, um, and, and make it easier to author, then a lot of the impediments that exist now to producing, uh, government information will come down and, folks won't, uh, won't look for alternatives that don't get captured by our systems uh, to preserve information, to keep it for the long term. You know, it's great that you put a really whiz-bang web calculator on uh, um, uh, whiz-bang web calculator on, on your website, but that doesn't get preserved forever. Whereas a committee report that might have some, some really, um, interactive diagrams or charts or graphs or whatever that does get preserved. It, you know, a copy of that goes into a cave someplace so that we, we preserve that for all time. Great. Well, next one is what book or article most shaped your thinking with respect to congressional reform? So yeah, the, the short answer to that question is um, I, I don't know that I can identify one. Um, I spent 30 years of my life working, uh, working in the House of Representatives and more than half of that time working on the floor. 
Um, I guess if there were any book, um, it would be uh, it'd be the House Rules and Manual. Um, you know, an old professor of mine who worked for worked for Speaker Wright, he, he held up his copy of this book and and said, uh, you know, there's at the time there was some fifty odd rules and it was it was about fifteen hundred pages. And he said, but really in the House of Representatives there's only one rule that matters and that's whoever has 218 votes wins. Um, but, you know, I, I've spent a lot of time working through uh, the rules of the institution and making sure it, uh, uh, it functions. And sometimes we've been successful at that. Other times we've fallen short. Um, but uh, as we, uh, as we look towards uh, making the institution better, making it, serve its members and the public better. Um, you know, I think, I think there's actually a lot of wisdom to be found in, uh, in the House Rules and Manual. Excellent. Well, the last question is really about your plans for the future. Obviously, you're at GPO and you've got uh, still a big uh, set of things that you want to accomplish there. What else do you have on the horizon? Uh, you know, I think that's, that's the big thing for now. Um, we're we're happy to be getting back to normal and looking at things. And um, frankly, I'm looking looking to get out and travel and meet uh, uh, meet a lot of our uh, stakeholders in the uh, in the broader community. And whether that's our suppliers or uh, a lot of our contractors um, or folks out out in in the world who use our products, um, that's that's what I'd really like to spend some time on as, as the world opens back up. Excellent. Mr. Halburn, thank you so much for your time. Your Thanks for your service and best of luck uh, with all your ambition with the uh, GPO. And we look forward to seeing the results. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thank you.